there pull up a chair well funny we should be talking about 1971 let me pull up the file here um last show i kind of casually mentioned this movie called only human well it turns out a pretty fascinating deal there and a lot happened in 1971 i mean a whole lot happened there but first let me get to a couple random things um it looks like the boys and girls at harp have been busy there was an earthquake in california yesterday you know this really is this country and i know this is not a joking matter it is more like the cheap version of auschwitz right because like this this country is the cheap version of the matrix they get people to buy those ring doorbells and spying equipment echo things for their homes to listen listen in while they're there um i mean it was easy to sell these things because 
people have just gotten incredibly lazy. I mean, it's too much to go and look up something. You have to be able to talk to a box in your house. It's fine on you. So, yeah, I think this is really the cheap seat version of what we saw in Auschwitz. Now, I don't believe completely what was going on in Auschwitz. I don't believe the ovens were true because I saw a documentary that, you know, the doors didn't, I mean, it didn't seem right, okay. But I believe a lot of experimentation likely went on because they were probably getting ready to come here, right? Because when they were here, originally in the 1800s, they would be learning about being doctors, right? So, yeah, so a lot coincides, and because they're kind of nuts for numbers and stuff, a whole lot of stuff happened around 1971. As a matter of fact, there was even a big Tusami in 1971. Yeah, because on the earthquake yesterday in California... What they said was that um, it was up around the Humboldt area in Northern California. And that area is looking like it's going to be getting rain for the next week or so. Rain and those dry hills and those forests, mudslides. I'm not predicting it. This is what happens when you get rain after a long period without water, okay? And you've got forests full of ground and stuff. So, yeah. So, what they were saying on the news about this earthquake was that at first, they thought it might be have some sort of Tusami effect because it hit right there on the water. Well, I think probably the people at Harp, maybe they were hitting for the, probably they were heading their target into people's homes and they missed and got the water. I mean, really, you think you put it past them? So, yeah, so um, I don't know what they're up to, but they're up to something, right? So I just certainly hope you have a meetup planned if anybody in your family is still speaking to you. So... Let's get on to 1971. It was a fascinating world. And I would encourage you to go watch my show about 9-11 that's on YouTube. And the reason that I did that show about 9-11, well, because of the Muslim deal, but because of um, the music. The music that dropped that day on 9-11 is horrifying, right? So I have to get... And then, in the meantime, Andy found this law that they have reenacted twice in this country that has to do with getting to us to comply more in the Jewish order. Yeah, it's really crazy. But So I thought, well, I'll get 1971 off. In my world, this is kind of a fun day, right, talking about 71. <laughs> we have to kind of look past what they're actually doing there. But, yeah, so I'm not going to have anything horrific to say today, except at first... I will tell you why I ended up on 1971, right? Well, interesting enough, I went to look for that movie, Only Human. And I'm going to be playing it at the end. And you'll be able to hear it and understand it fine. And I'll talk about more of that in a second here. But I went to look for that movie, and it was complicated to find it. And why was it complicated? Well, you'd have to ask them, right? Because this group does have a website. They say on their website, we did this movie, but they don't provide a link. <laughs> so I found it at one of the Wayback Machines, and so I'll have to play it at the end because I tried to figure out if I could give you the keywords to go look for yourself, and it didn't work. It's kind of buried, so it took me a little finagling around to find it. So at the end, I want to play you two clips, and I'll get to that in a second here. Because when I started looking at 1971, can't remember why I was looking at 71, but anyway... Um, they did an act, this act that I was talking about, remember before I was talking about how they were changing the mental health deals in this country, right? Well, they did an act in 1967 
And that movie came out in 1971, right? That little helpful clip. And it was signed into law in 1967 by Ronald Reagan. But the act went into full effect July 1st, 1972. And it cited seven articles of intent. And those articles, I will cut to the chase here, uh, basically <laughs> what it says... It sounded good, right? Um, it's really when they kicked the 5150 into gear. Uh, it was to end the inappropriate, indefinite, and involuntary commitment of mentally disordered persons, people with developmental disabilities, and people impaired by chronic alcoholism, and to eliminate legal disabilities. To provide prompt evaluation and treatment of persons with serious mental disorders or impaired by chronic alcoholism. Prompt evaluation. <laughs> I don't know where they came up with that one. To, to guarantee and protect public safety. Ding, ding, ding. To safeguard individual rights through judicial review. Ding, ding, ding. That means lock them up, right? Safeguard your rights. Judicial review. Courts. Judges, right? To provide individualized treatment, supervision, and placement services by a conservatory program for gravely disabled persons. To encourage the full use of all existing agencies, professional personnel, and public funds to accomplish these objectives. And to prevent duplication of services and unnecessary expenditures. Get them off that payroll. Get them out in the streets. That's what tents are made for, right? To protect mentally disordered persons and developmentally disabled persons from criminal acts. <laughs> well, who's going to protect us from them? That's what I want to know. <laughs> okay, so then, so the movie happens in 71, right? And this act got signed into effect in 72. Now, you might think that I'm just a very suspicious person by this point, right? <laughs> Maybe you'll change your view when you hear the clip at the end, because the clip at the end was done in 1971, and it was like the, uh, let's get the public ready for releasing all these crazy people, okay? Uh, that's what that was about. So I would prefer that you listen to it on your own and make your own decision. So 1971, McDonald's, <laughs> their famous commercial, you deserve a break today. Um I'll give you some keywords to look for. It is incredible. Just type in 1971 into the search engine on YouTube and take a ride, okay? And don't forget to watch my show about 9-11 while you're over there. So 1971 is considered the most important in music's long and illustrious history, 1971. Um there was shows about, was 1971 rock music's greatest year? Special documentary. I've watched all these, by the way. They're all very good. Um, there was, um, some guy did an interesting one. It was summer 1971, a day in the life of a 16-year-old. It is fascinating because he shows, you know, his dad and the things, the cars they drove and stuff. Very interesting. So, yeah, so um, very interesting year. And I'll get to some of the songs and stuff here. We'll kind of lighten this stuff up a little bit. So, um, okay, they said, um, 
There was a book that inspired the new Apple TV docu-series. It's called 1971, The Year That Music Changed Everything. (laughs) It's out now. So, yeah. So, when I was wandering around that only human thing, I found it pretty interesting that these mental health people, National Association for Mental Health, Kind of interesting, they didn't bother to put up a link for their own video, right? Um, And um, the second clip I will play, I don't know which order I'll play them in, but one clip will be about the horrible things that happened in 1971, and it is hair-raising, okay? So I will save you those details, all the things that happened. I'll, I'll go over a few of them here. I mean, we went off the gold in 1971. A lot of stuff happened in 1971, right? So, um... The film that the the one film about the deals about 1971 that'll play at the end with the only human show, um, and then it, it's a perfect example of controlled opposition, right? Because this is a big YouTube channel on, on the platform, and they um, tell the truth about the historical records of what went on. But you'll hear right in the middle of the clip they slip in an advertisement for gold and crypto. <laughs> <laughs> that's how controlled opposition works, folks. They bring you in and then flip you around. So, yeah. Um, and then some of them actually will bring you in with so much data. And what that does is that makes everybody think that somebody else is taking care of it. We have this issue in this country with this feeling that somebody else will take care of things. And I got to tell you, you better learn to be taking care of things for yourself pretty soon here. So, um, yeah. So let me get to some of this other stuff here and get off of that. So, it's just incredible. Um, there's a um, Johnny Carson, actually, I'll, hopefully I'll get to him one of these days. He was 1962 to 1992, right in the middle of that 1971 era. To understand how we got here, we need to understand what happened, right? That Mental Health America deal in 1971, they produced and distributed the film only human which aired on more than 150 i read up to 200 but 150 television stations to improve public understanding of mental illness and public acceptance of persons with mental illnesses yeah really kind of crazy stuff right it illustrates ways in which we express attitudes toward emotional problems and mental health and encourages the acceptance of difference in the behavior and attitudes of others. It uses actual interviews to encourage those who need psychiatric help to overcome their reluctance to seek it and list sources that are available to provide such help. Pretty key point, right? Um, yeah, when you when you listen to that clip, your hair will start to stand up in a little bit. <laughs> I'm just saying. Okay, so let's get back to some key things in 1971. Our friends in um, Switzerland had an event there, December 4th, at the Montreux Casino. Our, and this relates to music, it's kind of fun, so... Switzerland burns during the Frank Zappa show, Zappa show when someone in the crowd lit a fire. Why is this important? Well, across the street was a band called Deep Purple who set off to wreck, excuse me, 
there was a band called Deep Purple who was set to record there the next day. They were watching from their hotel rooms. Isn't that funny? Right across the street from Frank Zappa in Switzerland, right? As a result of the fire, they wrote the song Smoke on the Water to memorialize the event. I think these songs have a tremendous amount of meaning. So, 1971 was classic rock at its height. Um, The music from this area holds up so well today that it is revered as some of the greatest music of all time. So, Led Zeppelin, Zeppelin, he released the, um, and the names of these songs are just, ooh. (laughs) Led Zeppelin, his fourth album, I believe. The album contains one of the most classic rock songs called Stairway to Heaven. (laughs) The album has sold well over 25 million copies and contains other classic songs such as Black Dog, Rock and Roll, Misty Mountain Hop, and Going to California. The Rolling Stones came out with their Sticky Fingers album in April. Um, It was their 11th studio album. Um, The songs were Brown Sugar, Wild Horses, Dead Flowers, Uh, The Who, one of my favorite groups um, from that era. The Who were working on another rock opera called Lifehouse. They put together another masterpiece. The album only hit number four in the U.S. The album brought us hits like Baba O'Reilly, Won't Get Fooled Again, which you've heard me play that several times. I think that should be our theme song, right? Won't Get Fooled Again. And Behind Blue Eyes. And Won't Get Fooled Again became their theme song. Carol King came out with an album called Tapestry in February of 1971. It was one of the most critically acclaimed albums of the time. Tapestry would go on to become one of the best-selling albums of all time and garnered Carol a four Grammys in 1992. The big songs were It's Too Late, (laughs) I Feel the Earth Move, So Far Away, and You've Got a Friend. (laughs) Oh, there was another one, uh, something about a natural woman. I don't know. But anyway, so then, of course, The Doors. People say that Jim Morrison is likely Chevy Chase. Do I know that? No. But while I'm on the subject of that, I've been posting pictures on YouTube on the community page. You might want to check out there. And um, I ran across a picture of um, my air, Golda my air. <laughs> somebody said, that looks like LBJ. And I thought, darn, that she does look like LBJ. Well, I think that she was a lot shorter, but I don't know. I couldn't find, I'm not going to spend all week on this, right? I couldn't find any photos. I only found one of Golda Meyer kind of standing behind Kennedy. <laughs> so I couldn't really verify the height thing. But if you do a side-by-side of Golda Meyer <laughs> and LBJ, I don't know. They were both pretty ugly people. But <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, um, the doors, um it was their sixth and last album to feature singer Jim Morrison as he died, supposedly, three months after the release of the album. The album gave us such classic Doors tracks as Writers of the Storm, Love Her Madly, 
in the title track, L.A. Woman. So, yeah, um, Black Sabbath uh, was never a fan about them, but they came out with songs like, <laughs> well, <laughs> let me get really scroll down here a minute. <laughs> I don't want to start laughing. I'll lose my pace here. Um, Black Sabbath, I don't think I ever saw them in concert. They came out with a band's third studio album. Of course, it was a third, third, sixth, ninth, whatever, right? Would go on to sell over 2 million copies and be the band's highest charting album and the only one to make it into the top 10. The album spawned the hits Children of the Grave and After Forever. So, yeah, <laughs> whatever, take that what you want. Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story album came out. It's his third album. Yeah, Every Picture does tell a story, doesn't it? <laughs> I got that right. The album would go on to number one. So, anyways, the album gave us Maggie May. That was a very popular song. I Know I'm Losing You. Reason to Believe. I didn't... It's good. Oh, he said he didn't get into Rod until later. Um, Marvin Gaye. What's going on with his album? <laughs> John Lennon. Oh, he had some... Um, Marvin Gaye had some songs, but I don't really... Um, I wasn't into Marvin Gaye, so I don't really know them. But one song was What's Going On. The other was Make Me Want to Holler, <laughs> Mercy, Mercy Me, and Save the Children. These people are just horrific. But anyway, so John Lennon, he had an album September 9th, 1971 called Imagine. The album has one of the most revered songs in history, Imagine. That song has a lot of significance. I suggest you might play that tune while you're hunting around today. It is probably the song he is most famous for as a solo artist. It is the one album and song that left an everlasting impression on so many people. So, yeah, imagine. <laughs> imagine. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine what's up, right? But I try to stick to the facts here. So, um, Elton John, Madman Across the Water. What's up with that? <laughs> Tiny Dancer, Indian Sunset, I have no idea what that means, Janis Joplin, her record, her album was Pearl, came out January the 11th, Janis's second solo and sadly her last, <laughs> and he went on to say, rarely does anyone make such an impact and last impression as Janis did and with only two albums under her belt. This release gave us memorable songs such as Cry Baby, Me and Bobby McGee, and Mercedes Benz. Then the most popular was Apple Pie came out in October. I never saw that movie, know nothing about it. And then live albums. Just look for live albums in the 90s. So all you have to do or do a few search terms, right? Go over to YouTube, type in 1971. Type in live albums that year. Type in history of rock and roll. Type in top ten songs that year. It just, you know, <clears throat> take a ride. It is, I was just absolutely fascinated. So let me go over some of the key events from 1971. Well, sadly, Coco Chanel, that tranny, died at the age of 87 in 1971. Interestingly enough, 1971, China is admitted to the United Nations. <clears throat> So the, uh, oh, another interesting thing in 1971, of course it has to do with money, right? Hold on one second. 
excuse me. Um, 1971, NASDAQ, NASDAQ, the stock market, a new stock market index called NASDAQ debuts. NASDAQ is where all the tech freaks hang out and sell their lies, right? There was a big earthquake in Peru. Um, the UK and Ireland switched to decimal currency. Thatcher the milk snatcher. Education Secretary Margaret Thatcher ends free school milk for children over the age of seven in the UK. Bombings in the IRA. Attica prison riots in New York. Switzerland, women are granted the right to vote. Amtrak was created to provide inner-city passenger train services. Mount, Uther, Mount Etna erupts in Sicily. 60% of Americans are against the war in 1971. Um, a Tusami hit India. Tusami in the Bay of Bengal kills 10,000 people. <clears throat> Greenpeace comes into existence. Federal Express is started by Fred Smith. Yeah. Australia and New Zealand announced that they pull out their troops out of Vietnam. Cigarette advertising has ended. <laughs> Some of the old movies are pretty funny when the doctor walks into the room and he pulls out a cigarette while he's giving the patients the horrible news about their loved one that he just operated on or something. He pulls out, fires up a cigarette and offers them one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let me see. Um, oh, interesting enough, Richard Nixon, he implemented, so if you think they don't have the authority, I think again, he implemented a 90-day freeze on wages and prices because at 19, in 1971, he also removed gold and silver backing from the U.S. dollar. And if you really believe the story that they still have gold at Fort Knox, I would like to discuss another proposition to you later. <laughs> I kind of doubt they're storing any gold there. Um, so anyway, so... Um, yeah, Idi Amin takes control of Uganda. So, National Public Radio gets created. <laughs> that was a winning deal, wasn't it? Um, I don't know. Oh, Charles Manson and three of his followers receive the death penalty. So, I don't know what to say. Um, I would take a look at the songs. I would take a look at um, the movies from that era and I would also pay very close attention to these next clips that are going to play because the one about 1971 <clears throat> I'll run that one first and then I'll run the um, only human one after that because it'll give you a different perspective so once you hear all the things they were implementing in 1971 and then introducing that movie it will start to perk your ears up a little bit. So, anyhow, <clears throat> for the decades leading up to 1971, the U.S. experienced a ton of real, massive growth. 
Workers went from making $675 a year or $19,000 in today's money to more than $56,000 in today's money by the late 60s. People enjoyed paid leave and sick days for the first time. They could pay off student loans, buy houses and cars, and enjoyed a financially stable life. Payroll increased by at least 32% in the 60s alone. Fiber optic cables, LEDs, weather satellites, the heart pacemaker, the internet, DRAM for computers, lasers were all invented in the 60s alone. We landed on the moon. The upper, middle, and lower classes were all moving up together in harmony. But then 1971 hits, and something really weird happens. The economy kept growing, except there was no longer everyone getting richer together. Now it was only the rich getting richer, and the middle and lower class basically flatlined to this day. Even with globalization, even with the computer revolution, the internet revolution, the biotech revolution, it somehow has not added up to quite as much of a difference as people thought. And if you were in the mid-1960s, people thought it was going to be the Jetsons who had vacation trips on the moon and flying cars and robots doing all your work. And it hasn't quite happened. It's been just much slower. Right. The only robot that does any work that I'm aware of is the Roomba little carpet sweeper. There isn't as much progress happening as advertised, and that uh, rather than racing towards utopia or dystopia, the much bigger problem is one of relative stagnation. It, it sort of manifests economically, and that for the first time we have a younger generation that's not clearly doing better than their parents. Family incomes are up uh, some from the uh, late 60s, but it's not clear that's the right metric, because uh, you have a lot of families where uh, both spouses are working, and that's that's very different from the world of, of the late 60s. Okay. And, uh, the inflation rate skyrocketed from around 4% at the start of 1971 to more than double at 8.8% in 1973. By the end of the 70s, it would go up to 12%. Household debt exploded exponentially after 1971. So while lower and middle class income stayed stagnant, they were simultaneously getting shackled in debt. College tuition also suspiciously started skyrocketing after 1971. And ask yourself, how many new, real, physical, truly revolutionary technologies like LEDs or fiber optics have we really seen in the last few decades besides reusable rockets? Not much. Something happened. The rules of the game were changed. It was no longer a level playing field. And the best part is, is that it slipped right underneath the noses of the middle and lower class. And all the signs point back to this one year, 1971. It was the year that rearranged the very fabric of society as we know it. But to understand what happened, we have to take a journey all the way back to World War I. And if you want some free Bitcoin, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin for funding your account on BlockFi. This is not financial advice, but I've already personally made $568.74 in pure interest just by keeping my crypto in my BlockFi interest accounts. I literally did nothing to make this passive income. That's because BlockFi is a great crypto platform that allows you to earn up to 9% APY on crypto that you keep in your account. Interest accrues daily and is paid monthly. There are no hidden fees, no minimum balances, and no reason to wait. Click the link below to open up your account and get your free Bitcoin now. Thanks to BlockFi for sponsoring this video.
before World War I hit, trade around the world was conducted on a very simple gold standard. Basically, whatever you wanted from another country, you would pay for any required weight of gold. This meant that countries that had lots of stuff to export would have more gold than countries who didn't have a lot to export. And before World War I, the system worked pretty well. The governments around the world kind of got along perfectly, which meant trading with gold was simple and easy. But then World War I came around and threw the entire system on its head. The war brought a lot of infighting and disagreements between countries that used to work together. It put a lot of powerful countries in debt. They had to spend a lot of their gold buying weapons and equipment to fight against each other. And gold reserves started being spread around the world much more thinly. By the end of World War I, the U.S. had a serious gold deficit. And once the Great Depression hit, this got even worse. So in 1930, the government pretty much forced Americans to exchange all the gold they had for dollars. They increased the price of gold from $20 an ounce to $35 an ounce, hoping that this would discourage Americans from buying gold in the future. This also meant that a lot of foreign countries suddenly got interested in trading their gold for dollars. Since they would be getting so much more money in exchange for their gold, almost every country that had a natural gold source traded it with the U.S. for dollars. By 1939, there was enough gold in the world to replace all the money in circulation. Then World War II hit, and suddenly, the U.S. was dipping into its gold reserves again. And if they thought World War I took a lot of money, World War II was even worse. The two wars had wrecked the global financial system, and the simple gold standard and government taxes just wasn't enough to fund the crazy spending the U.S. had to do. Something had to change. Enter the Bretton Woods system. At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. Invited by President Roosevelt to the first major world financial meeting since the London Conference of 1933, they will work in the seclusion of this White Mountains resort. At the end of the war, the 40 biggest and most important governments in the world all came together at the Bretton Woods Hotel in New Hampshire to try to find a new financial standard that would be less likely to cause a global bankruptcy. The U.S. had more than 75% of the world's gold, and the dollar was one of the only currencies still linked to the gold standard by then. So the countries agreed they would value their national currencies relative to the dollar's value in gold. It was basically a very indirect version of the gold standard that pinned the value of the dollar at $35 per ounce of gold. All the other countries of the world would adjust the value of their currency according to that. And for a while, it worked. The U.S. stockpiled its new gold from countries who wanted to trade in gold for dollars, and the Bretton Woods system became the new way to have a stable currency after a chaotic war. But all things must come to an end, and that end came in the year 1971. So by the late 40s and early 50s, the U.S. had a new superpower, the ability to print as much money as it needed for whatever it wanted. It wasn't supposed to work like that. There was supposed to be a methodical decision-making process that kept the amount of dollars in the world equal to the amount of gold the U.S. has stockpiled, but the temptation to print money was just too great. It was like giving a child the keys to a candy shop. Whenever there was a new national development, social program, or massive technological project, the U.S. could just print the money it needed to pay for it. After all, dollars were as good as gold. With all this extra money, the economy obviously boomed, but it wasn't sustainable. By 1955, America went to war in Vietnam, and suddenly, it needed a lot more money than it had in gold. The Vietnam War carried on for 20 years and cost $168 billion, or around $1 trillion in today's money. To fund it, the government had to print money like crazy, and near the end, this reckless creation of new dollars finally caught up with it. 
You see, other countries started noticing that the U.S. was printing way more money than it could possibly have in gold. So they got worried. What if the president suddenly announced that instead of $35 for an ounce of gold, it would be now $45 or $50? It would be the perfect way for the U.S. to stay afloat, but it would mean countries like the U.K. and France would have to pay way more money to get their gold back. So the U.K. and France decided to quit while they were still ahead, and France sent a warship to New York to pick up their gold. It was 1971, and President Nixon was having none of it. So in one fell swoop, he declared a suspension of anyone's ability to convert dollars into gold. I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. This short statement would become one of the most pivotal moments in history that hardly anyone knows the importance of. For the first time in modern history, the world's money was no longer tied to anything. For the first time, if you want to take people's wealth, if you want them to work for you as your indentured slaves, no longer did you have to do it at the point of a gun or through taxes, both of which breeds resentment. Now all you had to do was print more money. The more money you printed, the more of their wealth you stole from them without them ever even noticing it before it's too late. Because the dollar amount in their bank account stays the same, but the value of those dollars goes down. What started in 1971 was the greatest con and wealth redistribution scheme humanity has ever seen. And with it, the Bretton Woods system officially came to an end. The money printer was let loose, and the chaos that resulted was subtle, like boiling a frog. Immediately, the dollar's value dropped at least 50%. All that new money pushed up the prices of assets like real estate and stocks, which the rich own and the poor don't, furthering the divide. What used to take 30 hours of work to buy one unit of a publicly traded stock in 1860 would take at least 126 hours of work today. 1971 was also the year that the 30-year mortgage standard was introduced, which meant that where you could have bought a house for just three years' salary in 1950, you're in debt for the next 30 years today. Instant money, M-O-N-E-Y, in the form of a convenient personal loan. So household debt explodes exponentially, college tuition explodes exponentially, the number of lawyers quadrupled, and what did all that debt and divide mean for middle and low-income families? Over half of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, even when they make more than $100,000 a year. Most Americans that can save have less than $5,000 in their savings accounts, and the income for the middle and lower classes has stayed nearly the same since 1971, while the upper class continues to climb. The modern pleb is a debt slave draped in Louis. And today, we might be witnessing the grand finale of the dollar. Almost a year ago, I made a video on how 40% of US dollars were printed in the year 2020, one of our most popular videos on the channel. Well, today, the Federal Reserve has updated those numbers, and I redid the math. It's no longer 40% of all US dollars were printed since 2020, not 50%, not even 70%. Nope, since January 2020, the US has printed nearly 80% of all US dollars in existence. 80%! M1! I literally had to do a double take when I saw this number, because what? But yes, at the start of 2020, there was $4 trillion in circulation. And in October 2021, there's over $20 trillion in circulation. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that the government has so far robbed 80% of your wealth in the span of under two years. 
And although you may only feel this theft and higher gas prices and such so far, it's probably going to get a lot worse. So what is the solution? Not financial advice, but one, don't get into debt. Two, click the join button below for private documentaries too controversial to be released to the public to continue to learn how the world really works. And three, is to hedge your bets against the US dollar and the money printer by putting some money into crypto. And one crypto platform I've been using for a while now is BlockFi, one of the easiest places to store your crypto and earn interest on it at the same time. Like I mentioned before, I've already earned $568.74 in interest just by keeping my crypto in my BlockFi interest account. I literally did nothing to make this passive income. All you have to do is click the link below, open up your BlockFi account, fund your account, and you could get up to $250 in free Bitcoin as a bonus for signing up. From there, the platform allows you to buy crypto instantly and directly from your bank account, and whatever crypto you have in your BlockFi account, you'll automatically earn up to 9% APY on it. You can set up recurring purchases so you can dollar cost average into crypto, which is what I have set up, and you don't have to wait to see your purchases reflected in your BlockFi account. There are no hidden fees, and you can start with as little as $20. Today, BlockFi manages over $10 billion in assets globally. It's on the Forbes FinTech 50 list, and BlockFi has over 1 million clients and 350 global institutions that use BlockFi services. So use the link below or go to blockfi.com slash jake to get up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for funding your accounts and start earning interest on your crypto today. That's blockfi.com slash jake with the link below. Thanks to BlockFi for sponsoring this video. In fact, for better or worse, we've created most of it. We've made tools and we've manipulated nature, changed our surroundings here on Earth and even off of it. But what a curious creature man is, for what he's learned down the ages, has concerned things other than himself. Oh, yes, of course, we have learned a good deal about the human, how it works. We've learned to diagnose ourselves, how to treat them. And yet, when we get up here, in this area, it's a bit more difficult. And yet, the mind is the very thing that makes man unique. It accounts for all that is out there. And of course, what goes on in here, in this very private place that each of us has, determines how we function out there in the everyday world. But it's difficult to learn how the mind functions because what goes on in here is so abstract. When a malfunction occurs, it's harder to diagnose. After all, you can't x-ray an emotional crisis or take the pulse of a bruised ego. However, one way or another, most of us recognize the thing up here isn't working quite right, and we express it in everyday conversation. For instance, when we're telling about a particular experience we've had. So here I had been rehearsing the presentation for two days, but when they called on me, I absolutely went blank. I just out. Everything's fine. Then I see this chick, man. I see this chick. 
And I just slipped out. Well, before, and I still don't know exactly why, but I absolutely blew my top. I had 14 people coming to dinner, and the cook tells me she's leaving. Well, I came unglued. We say, this drives us wild, or this breaks us up. We say one guy has a good head on his shoulders, and the next, he's out of his gourd. We've developed a pretty spectacular way of talking about our mental state, and I suppose that's as good a way as any of expressing our tensions, frustrations, anxieties, our moments of fear, of happiness, well-being. After all, you can imagine the problems we might have communicating our emotions if we all use textbook jargon. When I initially encountered you, I suffered a temporary uh, catatonic reaction, triggered perhaps by fear of rejection syndrome. But now that we're relating, I'm undergoing an emotional catharsis. I feel a compulsion to establish a direct one-to-one -one feedback relationship. I do not share the interpersonal psychodynamics of your fantasy. So knock off this irrational behavior. What's rational and what isn't rational is sometimes simply a matter of viewpoint. None of us has all the traits of rational thinking and behavior all of the time. There are many different degrees of mental health, just as there are physical health. For instance, do you ever have days when you feel like this? Or like this? And at other times, we become more like this. Certainly, sometimes we feel like this. And on other occasions, quite the opposite. Of course, we all have this in common. Every one of us is, after all, only human. But when we get over those passing feelings, we can laugh at them. Because we've all had them. And part of being human is having our own idiosyncrasies, our own viewpoints, our own differences. That's part of what makes us unique. And just because the next fellow is different, that doesn't make him abnormal or irrational. For example, what is considered normal in one segment of our society may seem quite peculiar in another. The way one person reacts to something isn't necessarily the way another person does. These differences enrich our world by accepting them we can enrich our lives. Well, I always get a few pictures in this ballgame. I grab a look at this, that guy, you know. Even in our I'm individual experience, we find these contrasts. <laughs> what may be acceptable behavior in one situation may not be appropriate in another situation. Of course, most of us, most of the time, can agree on what is appropriate and normal, what is real. All we have to do is use our heads, right? All right, let's try using our heads on this. Which rectangle is smaller? The one on the bottom sure seems smaller, doesn't it? Let's see.
Uh, just as an optical illusion can trick our eye and cause us to misjudge reality, tension and anxiety can distort our perception. And the senator predicted bipartisan support for the initiative. On the local scene, police are still searching for the so-called doorbell gunman, the mysterious armed intruder who has terrorized five young women in as many weeks. In his latest attack, the gunman followed his pattern of ringing the doorbell of a midtown apartment and forcing... Ron sent me over to buy a cup of sugar. <sighs> Anxiety or tension can be useful, too, somewhat like hunger and thirst. Not only are they natural, they're necessary to human survival. These are reactions which help us protect ourselves when we're confronted by a dangerous situation. Without them, we might not be able to react effectively in an emergency. Sometimes we voluntarily put ourselves in situations where we'll feel tense and anxious. Like when we go to a sports event, or watch adventure films, or read murder mysteries. We call it getting a thrill. And it's both a stimulating source of pleasure and a mentally healthy way of blowing off steam from other tensions that may have been building up in our lives. It's the tensions and anxieties we haven't chosen for ourselves, the ones that aren't pleasurable, that bug us the most. And we all have them, whether we're aware of it or not. Sometimes we think of this as being unique to our times. We've even given our contemporary seat a name, the age of anxiety. But every age has had its own stresses and worries to cope with. Our ancestors had plenty of reason for tensions of their own. From the threat of attack by saber-toothed tiger, to the threats of floods and drought and famine. From the imagined dangers of witchcraft, evil curses, black magic, to the very real hazards of plague, pestilence and slavery. So being concerned with ourselves in the times in which we live is nothing new, nothing unusual. The difference is, today, life is more complex. Conflicting demands are made on us. Change is so rapid that an answer that seems right one day may be wrong the next. Traditional codes of do's and don'ts are constantly being challenged. We're surrounded by threats to our safety, our well-being, our happiness. We're all confronted by these threats to our peace of mind. To be alive is to be subject to stress. So we all have anxieties and tensions. At certain times in the course of our lives, it's normal to be a little more sensitive, uptight, 
like when we're undergoing major changes in our life, stages such as adolescence, menopause, or when we make a big change in our style of living, perhaps marriage, birth of a child, or when we lose someone we're close to. Sometimes, too, for very personal reasons, we have strong reactions. Reactions that might make very little sense to another person. For instance, if as a small child, a very small child, you'd been separated from your parents in the park, for the rest of your life you might feel very real panic any time you were alone in a large open space. And you might not even know the reason why you feel that way. Just as the next guy might not know why he has some particular fear. For instance, an exaggerated fear of heights. George, now you know you shouldn't be up there with that broken arm. You aren't in any shape to try something like that. Larry, climb up and paint that ceiling for George. You know I'm afraid of heights. I get dizzy. That's ridiculous. Now you just get right up there. Look, I can't help it. Being on a ladder bothers me. That's the nuttiest excuse I've ever heard of. There's nothing wrong with you except you're lazy. You know that? When we can make allowances for the other guy's problems of attitude and behavior as easily as we can for physical problems, we take an important step toward our own mental well-being. Of course, there are times when we all get worn out, edgy, perhaps from a siege of trouble, exhausting work. We can't seem to reason things out, or we get frustrated. We get caught in an impasse, a conflict. We can't seem to find a solution. When these things happen, sometimes we can't control our feelings even lose control of our actions. It's quite normal to have these bouts of anxiety and tension. And while they may be unpleasant and even painful, they're not cause for concern so long as we can bounce back from them. As long as we can successfully adapt, we can continue to learn and grow. But some of us sometimes can't seem to bounce back, can't seem to recover our balance. We find that our lives have become an entire series of crises. Instead of occasional passing emotional upsets, we have prolonged periods of intense anxiety and tension or depression. We can get so caught up in these troubles that they can cause even more worries, and it becomes a vicious circle. We can find that we're constantly down in the dumps for no apparent reason, getting terribly concerned over insignificant trifles, becoming belligerent, moody, suspicious, mistrustful, or escaping into daydreams and fantasies, or feeling guilty or worthless or unwanted. These are only a few of the symptoms that tell us that our problems may no longer be just an upset or a disturbance, but an actual illness. Just as there are many different symptoms, there may be many different reasons. Even scientists who specialize in the human mind aren't sure of the cause of some forms of mental illness. But whatever the cause, whatever form the illness takes, telling a mentally ill person to snap out of it without some professional help is the same as expecting someone with appendicitis to forget about it. When emotional upsets become frequent and persist and shake someone severely, when they start interfering with his ability to deal with his family, or his job, or with other people, it's time to get help. If a physical problem is left alone, it may get worse. The same thing is true yeah, for other problems, too. Oh, I've still got this pain in my side, you know. 
Had it about a month now. Last couple of weeks, I've hardly been able to hold down anything. I bet I haven't had a good night's sleep in ten days. I'm telling you, Frank, you ought to see a doctor and find out what goes on there. Yeah, yeah, I guess maybe you're right. Hey, how about you? Things looking up a little? Don't ask, boy. The kids, the wife, the in-laws, the boss, even the janitor's got it in for me around here. I can't sleep nights. I can't eat. I can't even keep my mind on my job. I'm cranky, you know? I'm, I'm depressed all the time. I know it's like I'm on a downhill slide the last couple of months. Everything cracking up around me. The worst part is I don't know when it's going to stop. I'm telling you, you ought to see about getting some help. Find out what's going on. Yeah, I guess you're right. You might think that needing help with such problems sets a person apart. Makes him very different from everyone else. Not so. In fact, one out of every four people will find this out from very personal experience. Because one out of four has someone in his immediate family who at some time will have a disturbance serious enough to require professional attention. Once a person starts getting that help, it isn't long before the problems start clearing up. And the person who seeks help has already taken an important step toward his own personal growth. I think I might have been mentally ill or emotionally ill before that, but I think the divorce precipitated the, the action of getting help. I guess about a year and a half ago, I just completely went into solitude. Like, I just wasn't paying attention to anybody. I went from school to my job and home and... The thing in itself caused the fear of being uh, treated by a doctor because I felt that I was getting messages from outer space or uh, maybe uh, secret messages that nobody should know and I didn't want anybody to be asking me questions about it. My uh, firstborn son was two years old and I, we realized that he was hyperactive and wasn't responding and reacting the way other children his age were. Well, I was forgetting everything that I learned in school. And I, all I was doing was just, you know, messing around. I quit the job and uh, went home and locked all the doors and pulled all the drapes and took a bottle and um, started to drink and got depressed, or got depressed and started to drink, I really don't know which, and made a suicide attempt. A lot of things were facing me, like bills and troubles, and uh, a lot of people had a lot of uh, different gripes about me, and I was upsetting the household. My son is, the, uh, is in a special school for emotionally disturbed children, and at the beginning, uh, we noticed it because he wouldn't talk, and whenever I show up on the scene, he'd start crying and screaming. And like I said, I remember very, being very whiny, and I would cry easily, and I'd be just depressed all the time. Just constantly depressed. And I gradually went into a deep depression. And that was the diagnosis that the doctor made when my friend took me for help. I don't know how I came to, you know, realize that I wasn't happy or whatever, but uh, I just, you know, I thought it would be a good thing to go see a psychiatrist or something. So uh, I looked into him and, you know, I found one. I've been told, and I, I think it's true, that the illness that I've experience throughout my life for 30 years has been what they call cyclical. In other words, every three years it starts up. So uh, I began to eventually learn that when I needed help, 
there, there was a place to get it. Mark is my oldest, and uh, I have five other younger children. It was very difficult for them. It was confusing for them. We started out on the basis that it was a family problem, which it was, and the only way to help Mark was to help all of us. See, it was a family therapy situation, all seen individually. You know, I thought it really would be too late, but the treatment is something that it's really helping me out quite a bit. I was uh, determined not to face reality and thought that as long as I didn't have to think about anything and could had my friend the bottle with me, it worked out pretty well for a while. But then it led to very serious things. After the suicide attempt is when I knew right then and there that I needed help desperately. And then I, uh, w it was recommended to me, and I accepted it, daycare. And I didn't know at the time that the hospital would be uh, quite like it is, which has helped me quite a bit. I do know that one of the big things that I had, and apparently a lot of the parents have in this field with uh, emotionally disturbed kids, there's a great guilt feeling that the parent has. He feels that uh, there's something I've done or haven't done, that this poor kid is suffering now, you know. And the therapy helps to alleviate that somewhat. For example, when I first went to the psychiatrist, you know, I, I was sort of scared of it because he could, I sort of felt that she could see me much clearer than I could see myself. It was a scary thing to do, but it was really worthwhile. I remember going and just not getting anywhere for so long because it's just so hard to... I think the hardest thing is to face yourself and to face what you think is so horrible, all the things you've repressed all your life. I, I think I've just accepted myself better. I've, I was raised with the thought that I was physically very ugly. And uh, I've had to learn to say to myself, you are not terribly ugly. People would turn away if you were. That you've never done anything like this before. You, you, I don't know, you, you think, I'm not nuts. What do I have to go talk to this guy for? That, that kind of stuff, you know. It's okay, my kid, yeah, you take him twice a week, but leave me alone. But uh, after a while, it, it became something I'd look forward to. Uh, for example, uh, what? Somebody wants to talk to me about my troubles for an hour? They'll listen? Remarkable, you know. Now I think uh, that she's an asset. You know, um, it's a good deal to have her. I can take advantage of, you know, her skills, her knowledge, and what she now knows about me. I mean, it's, it's not a scary thing. It's, you know, it's a good thing. The therapy that I'm in now, the weekly meetings, I am able to release anger that I am not able to release on my job or at home because I live alone. But uh, just accepting myself and, and uh, doing what I enjoy doing without trying to meet a pattern. I think I've been very fortunate in the therapists that I have and the counselors that I have because they've given me, like, homework to do. You concentrate on one little thing at a time and overcome that and uh, I'm still doing homework. Uh, I feel a lot different. I feel I feel like uh, I'm not as lost as I was. And it's brought out of you slowly to try to bring all this anxiety or whatever your trouble is out into the open with others and they talk to you about it. They talk about your problems, they talk about their problems and everybody else's problems and how one person is like another person and slowly you pass that stage after a while and you start doing your own talking. I thought of it first and now I see how it helped me and how it's helped Larry that uh, it's good to know that people can seek out that sort of thing now that it's not a mysterious 
thing as they used to be in the so-called dark ages before mental illness was recognized as something not to be ashamed of or feel guilty about. People who have uh, known me uh, said, how can you bear to say that you've been in a mental hospital? I said, well, same reason I tell them I was in a hospital for my appendix. I said, it's an illness and I'm not ashamed of it. The medication that they have today, that's available today, uh, these things are much more easily helped. And uh, there isn't uh, a lot to be afraid of today. What my psychiatrist is doing now is showing me a, a better way, or rather helping me cope with life in general. We're able to go on to the next goal, and we're able to cope with, with that together. They can complete, completely wrap you up into a brand new life. That's what the whole thing is based upon, is your life, people's feelings. Well, I've regained an awful lot of self-confidence, I know, and um, I really think I like myself a lot better. I like myself better than I ever did before. I like myself better, a whole lot better. I feel very lucky. <laughs> if you've got a problem, take it to a doctor. That's the first step. And it's not a matter of money or connections or anything else. You yourself have to realize that, yes, there is a problem, and I'm going to do something about it. To look in that mirror and say that, yeah, it's you, you got the problem, what are you going to do about it, you know? The point is, when help is needed, help is usually available. And it makes a big difference in solving problems that might seem inside. Satisfaction. Mental health is a matter of getting it all together. It has to do with how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about other people, how we're able to meet the demands of life. Contrasting reactions, moods, viewpoints, eccentricities, quirks, tensions, anxieties, different mental states at different times. Deep feelings, strong emotions, these are all part of the human condition. And so are the problems they sometimes give us. Now, it's very human to try to solve those problems by ourselves when we can. It's also very human to get help from others when we need it. And there are people who do need help in putting together the puzzle of their lives. Fortunately, there are lots of people who can help, people who are specialists in human problems, People who are trained to either give treatment when needed or suggest those who can. After all, the quest for peace of mind is universal, so there are many different doors. It's simply good sense to choose someone who has experience and training in helping people find solutions. And whatever those problems may be, you can be sure there are others who've had the same kinds of problems. So there's always someone who can lend a hand. If we have trouble finding that someone... Trouble making a choice is always another alternative. Get in touch with the local mental health association. They can suggest people to see, tell us what resources are available in our community, mail out information to us. That's their business. Opening doors for people who need help to people who can help. 
And whether we get help in a personal crisis or handle it by ourselves, the experience changes us a little. When we come through it, we find we've grown. We've learned. We've become a little tougher and maybe a little bit wiser. Instead of finding crisis out there, we begin to see challenges. It's quite a world. Not always an easy one, far from a perfect one, and we all see it differently. But getting to know how we fit into it, getting to know oneself, that is the most important and exciting of all human adventures. And if we should need help getting to know ourselves, it's good to know that there are people around who can give us a hand. <laughs>